Good morning, everybody. It's my pleasure to be here reading the Word of God on this Christmas Sunday. Um, we're standing, and after I read the scripture, we're going to say thanks be to God because we truly are thankful. I mean, aren't you thankful that we're able to send and support people who are giving clean water to those families? Aren't you thankful that you have clean water, that you don't have to worry about getting diseases from drinking out of your kitchen? And maybe you're thankful, maybe you're thankful that this weekend we had a good Star Wars that redeemed the last one. But the thing is, is that we are here, we are thankful for God, we are thankful, we are so much more thankful for baby Jesus than baby Yoda. And we are thankful that God has desired to reveal himself to us through this word. And, he, and what better place than what we're going to read this morning where we see the birth of Jesus Christ, the very image of God communicated to us. So, if you would please read with me. Uh, in the Bibles around the room, we're on page 807. We're going to read Matthew chapter 1, 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of, Lord, of the Lord commanded. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you would pray with me, please. Lord, we thank you so much for what you've done through Jesus. Everything in our life hinges on the birth of this child. And we pray, Lord, that we could truly see your plan and what you were doing this morning as you sent Jesus into the world, who condescended, who became a baby, became just like us, um, even though he deserved the riches and the glory of heaven. And Lord, I pray that you would please speak to us all, send the spirit to open our hearts to hear, and please... Um, uh, please make Jesus come alive to us and the very thought of a baby uh, be something that we can relate to. And we pray for Mark to preach well. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 That was the nerdiest scripture reading I've ever heard, man. Baby Yoda, the whole thing. Oh, man. Woo, Merry Christmas. Look at these are our go-getters, 8 a.m. And you look so nice at 8 a.m. That's amazing. Man, that is right. You guys are motivated. Uh, if you're new and you're a guest, I welcome you. I'm really glad that you're here. I'm Pastor Mark. This is my first Christmas service at Living Stones, and so we're sharing that together. And I uh, just woke up incredibly excited this morning, almost like it was Christmas morning. And, uh, and just excited to be with you and be here and to talk about Jesus. And if you are a guest, 
we don't have a lot to offer. I mean, we're here at 8 o'clock. There's not a lot to offer. But what we do have to offer is the coming of Jesus and the hope in the world and a changed life through faith. That's what we have to offer this morning. And so I welcome you here. And I just think of this, this project, this water. Jesus sacrificially came to us, which is why we practice the Advent and display the Advent by going all over the world and meeting both the physical needs and the spiritual needs of communities everywhere. That's what we're about. And so, man, I invite you to to give graciously and generously, um, just convicted by how uh, for granted we take things and, um, and what's happening in other parts of the world. And we get to live out the Advent in real time, which is why we combine that with this morning. I'm going to take just a couple of minutes this morning to walk through this text that we listened to. And, um, and, and it's all about the confrontation that Advent is to our life. It's If we could walk into a church, hear the story of Jesus, and kind of walk out without it affecting us, without it challenging us, we haven't really heard the story of Jesus. Jesus confronts us. And Advent, Christmas, is confrontational because it challenges us to think about the world so differently. We'll look at that. When I, you know, there's these moments in maybe the, the lives of if you have children and your children or a brother, sister, or, or maybe uh, somebody that you are friends with, you have these moments where you just get super proud of them. I have a few, I mean, moments where I think of I'm just incredibly proud of my children. One of the things I'm uh, this moment that I remember with my daughter that I was the, maybe the, the most proud ever. And uh, it's when she was suspended from preschool. True story. This actually happened. She was suspended. And I was, I was like, oh, let's go to ice cream, baby. Because here's what happened. Here's what happened. Um, it was Christmas time and it was preschool. And they're talking a lot about Santa Claus. And my daughter being the just the truth girl that she is, uh, just kept reminding the class that Santa's not real, right? Every time it got brought up. And, uh, and, and listen, before you're like, you're like, oh, here it is, judgy Christian pastor. You know, I understand, you know, just because Santa's same letters spell Satan, I'm not against him. I'm not, it's just, I'm not against him. We, we did Santa. Uh, we always said Santa was a fun game, like Mickey Mouse or something like that, right? Like, we just never put Santa above the story of Jesus, but we, we did it. We did it. We're, I'm cool with Santa, all right? And we would talk about the real Saint Nick, right? And what he did for children and bringing gifts to the poor and to the needy and then telling uh, his communities and cities about Jesus, the real Saint Nick. So we were okay with Santa. And we would tell her, like, it's a surprise and don't ruin it for others, right? Like that kind of thing. But that didn't, that didn't matter to her. Right? And so in class, during Christmas, the preschool teacher starts telling a story about how she saw Santa Claus. And that was the last straw for my daughter. She's like, no, you didn't. So she calls the teacher a liar and gets suspended from the Christmas party the next day. I show up to pick her up from school that day, and the teacher takes us out and says, hey, um, we're going to ask you to keep McKenna from the Christmas party tomorrow. Truth, this really happened. And I'm like, oh, really? Like, why? I thought, like, maybe 
something really awful went down, you know, whatever. She's like, she just won't stop saying that Santa is not real. And, and I'm like, wait a minute. Let me get this right. She keeps telling the truth, and she can't come to the Christmas party tomorrow? Is that what's going on here? Well, and I'm like, let me ask you a question, preschool teacher. Is Santa real? And she's like, well, no. I'm like, did you really see Santa when you were a kid? No. So she's telling the truth, right? And they're like, we're sorry. We're just going to. And true, she was suspended from. So we had a Christmas party. Yeah. We had the whole thing. And we had ice cream, the whole thing. It was a lot of fun, right? And I was so proud. But, but here's, the, here's the thing is, is Santa's a great game. Doesn't matter. That's neither here nor there. The point is that we have, a, we have a story of our lives that we're trying to write. And when Jesus broke into the world, he confronted us. And he confronted the reality we wanted versus the reality that is. And what happens is, is we can respond in, in several ways. And one of those responses is that we could suspend wrestling with the truth of Jesus because we just don't want to hear it. And we want to put it in a category that says, you're not invited in my life. You're not welcome here because you keep telling me the truth about myself. And so Advent confronts us in the same way. And this passage right here is that passage. And it confronts us in just kind of several ways. I want to invite you to, to think about how Christmas morning challenges our ways of thinking and our reality. And it demands a response this morning. Look at in verse 18 of our passage in Matthew chapter 1. Matthew is writing this story about the life and the events of Jesus. And he's, he's telling us, he's already told us about where he's come from and the history. And here's this big long list of names that I can't pronounce in chapter 1 that go all the way back to Abraham so you can see where Jesus come from. Because some of us are, are like, was Jesus even a real guy? Did he really live? Did he really do these things? And the Bible asserts all day long that he did. And not only that, is there's lots of proof about the coming of Jesus. Verse 18, this is what Matthew says. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Well, again, the, the story of Advent and Jesus coming isn't a myth. It's not a legend. It's not written that way. It's not written to make kind of Jesus, this big conquering hero that the myths or the legends of the day would have been written. If people wanted to make up the story of Jesus to compete with the current power structures, they wouldn't have written the story of Jesus in the way that it was. He wouldn't have come as a lowly baby born in the outskirts of a small little village and inside of a stable and with animals. He wouldn't have come in poverty. He would have come conquering. It would have been much more evident but his story is not a myth. It's not a legend. And, and here's what Matthew, who was with Jesus and has talked about the history of Jesus, says this is how it took place. It took place in this way. These are the facts. This is how it looks. Now, that challenges us because it looks weird, right? Look at the story. The birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, that meant engaged but not engaged how we think engaged. Engaged meant that you would be betrothed, you would be promised, as, and, and it would be as good as married, but there would be a, a long amount of time, usually about a year, that you would be as good as married, and then you would actually get married and 
move in together, it would be formalized. This idea of betrothed was that they were as good as married to Joseph before they came together, right? Before all that, all that goodness happened, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Pause. Some of us have been in church so long that this story doesn't seem weird to us. doesn't seem crazy. Some of you are guests. You're searching after Jesus. And these are some of the things you're struggling with. You're like, Mary, a virgin, right? No, none of that was going on. And became impregnated by the Holy Spirit. That's weird. That's a little cray-cray if we're honest, right? If we're honest, it's like, what? How do I make sense of that? Because it doesn't fit any of the ways that I think. It doesn't fit our real life. And then, but but then look, it goes on. Um, in, in, in it goes on. In, look at this prophecy in verse twenty-three, and it's a it's a quote from the Old Testament, some hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus, saying that what was said way back then is now finally coming to light. Look what it says, verse twenty-three. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Think about how nuts the story is. Mary, somewhere really kind of early, early adolescence. They got married way earlier back then. She's somewhere between 13 and 15, 16, something like that. She's betrothed to Joseph. She has an arranged marriage. And then she gets impregnated by the Holy Spirit. She's a virgin. And and all of this, the baby that is growing in her is literally God with us? What? Some of you, we just got to like, that's crazy. Some of you, that's a major hurdle because here's what you're saying. You're going, you know what? The stories of the Bible do not make sense to our everyday life. They do not make sense to how I see the world and how the world functions and physics and natural laws and virgins don't get pregnant. No, you're right. You're 100% right. And one of the misconceptions about the Bible is to believe that everybody in the Bible, as these things were happening, were absolutely just okay with it. But they weren't because these things didn't happen then either. That's what makes this story so amazing. One of my sons asked last night, why do we keep talking about Mary being a virgin? Yeah, I don't want to talk about it either. But we keep talking about it because that is the very essence of this whole thing. That, that a virgin was impregnated by the Holy Spirit and the child that grew did not have an earthly father, but a heavenly father. And it was God himself who's with us. Right? And here's the very first thing that Advent confronts us with. It confronts us with the reality of a personal God who does things quite different than we do. And the very first hurdle of the idea of of Jesus being born is first to realize that if God exists, then God himself is personal. And if he's personal, then he makes decisions. And if he's God, he makes decisions then that are different than us. And it doesn't really matter whether you have followed Jesus for a long time. We all, we all get trapped in this idea of God does things in our life that's different than I want God to do things, right? And the story of Advent confronts our reality. And it invites us into this question. 
can God do God things? You know, right now, there's this whole thing, right? Speak your truth. You do you. Can God? Can he speak his truth? Can God do God things? Or is it possible that our first hurdle about the story of Jesus is really a hurdle of me surrendering the way I would do things because I'm not God and embracing the reality that if a God exists and that God is personal and has a mind and a personality and a will, then it makes sense that he's going to do some things that only God can do like a virgin birth. And so then all of a sudden we get challenged with a reality. He's not, he, he, he's not, he doesn't have the mind of God. He's, he doesn't have a reference for supernatural things. Now, there's lots of stories you'd think that we'd be used to it by now, but we're not. And this one is so extreme that God himself would break into the world through a virgin birth and by the Holy Spirit. And, and you have the whole Trinity there, by the way, right? The Father... The Holy Spirit and the Son is there. It's all there. It's mind-blowing. And just like them, we are confronted with the supernatural. And, and here's what the supernatural is. The supernatural is not hocus-pocus and big things. The supernatural is anything that God does. And, and can God be supernatural? Is God allowed to do God things? Joseph was confronted with a personal God, was he not? Joseph, I know you're engaged to this woman. You're going to marry her. Guess what? She's a virgin. Don't worry about that. But she's impregnated by God himself. Oh, and by the way, the person that is in her is God himself. And he's like, wait a minute, what are you doing here? And he reacts. He responds. He struggles with it. He's just a man. And so then the first confrontation of this story this morning for all of us is, does God have to think and act like you would? And if he does, then what you find is instead of you worshiping a God, you have God worshiping you. If you have a God that agrees with everything and every way that you think life should go, then you are God. But if God is personal and active, self-existent, and we're going to talk about the attributes of God in this next series starting in, in January 1. And we're going to be talking about what is God like? Well, one of the things is he's personal and has a will and a personality, and he decides and makes things and, and determines things that are different than us. Are you God or do you have a God? Can that God do things in your life that is different than how you would want them done? That's the first confrontation of Advent. Secondly, look at it, it goes on. Joseph was also confronted with fear. Look at this. And her husband, being just a man, still great, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. There it is again. She'll bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. Have you ever had to make a really hard decision about something and you're like, okay, I think I know what I'm going to do, but I'm, I'm going to take a nap first. <laughs> you ever done that? Or you're like, I know what I'm going to do, but I'm going to sleep on it and see in the morning if it's still a good decision. Have you ever done that? 
But that's a good way to do things, right? Especially before you spend a large sum of money, you're like, let me sit on it and sleep on it. And then in the morning, right? That's what, that's what Joseph does. Do you notice this? He's wrestling with God. He's wrestling with the reality of God and this personal God that confronts his sensibilities and confronts the way that he wants life to go. Do you think he wants to marry a, 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 a woman who's already pregnant from the Holy Spirit? He doesn't want that. Does he want all the things that go with it? No. So he's being confronted. And then, so what, what does he do? He, he, he makes a decision. It appears here he made the decision to divorce her quietly, but he probably made it late at night wrestling. There's a lot of wrestling going on here. And then he's like, well, in the morning I'll take care of it. So he had made the decision, and then in the middle of the night what happens? God, right, an angel of the Lord. So the Lord sends a messenger, appears to Joseph in a dream, another supernatural reality. And what, what happens? He, he challenges Joseph. Now, this idea, there's a, there's a couple things here. You First, you've got to know that Joseph really loves Mary. He really does. He's a good guy. He really loves her. How do we know? He, he wants to divorce her. He's assuming infidelity. And, and in the Bible, the, the, the place where infidelity leads to divorce is through this betrothal period. And so if it, that's why you wait that year because you're like, is this person faithful and have I been faithful? It'll show itself. It'll present itself. And if it presents itself, that, then you could call off the betrothal. You could call off the engagement. That's how the New Testament talks. In, in fact, that's the words of Jesus when he says, hey, I only allow divorce for infidel fornication. He's talking about the same season of couples. So this was the law. This was the law of God. And so Mary's now pregnant. He's wrestling with God. And, and, and what does he, he say? He's confronted by his fear, but he really cares for her. And so listen to this phrase. He goes, I don't want to put her to shame. What does that mean? If, if, if he would have divorced her publicly, which would have been his right, if he would have divorced her publicly, what would have happened was a kind of a continuum of options. And at the very, the, the very height of that continuum would have been death itself. You remember the story of the woman that was caught in adultery and brought to the feet of Jesus? What were they trying to do? Stone her. They were going to kill her. That was the law. That was the law of God. If you were caught in adultery, well, Mary has been caught, if you were just to look at it naturally, in adultery. What was going to happen to her potentially? She'd be killed. Joseph loved her, doesn't want to put her to shame, doesn't want her killed. He's wrestling. Maybe God's at work. I trust her. I don't know what's going on. Let me divorce her quietly. He wasn't trying to preserve himself, as the story goes. He was preserving Mary. He really loved her. He really cared for her. But not only that is, he really loves God. These are the things you got to know about Joseph, and, and you'll see it kind of, happened towards the end of the passage, but he really loves God. Why? Because he was not interested in the public affair, but he was interested in honoring God. See, when you, if you go all the way back to Moses, God says to Moses, I'll, I'll allow divorce, but only because of the hardness of people's hearts. And then he follows up and says, I hate divorce, right? So you have this issue, but he, he offers divorce, and 
and um, and he just says, here's here's how you honor God in it. You have to write a letter. You have to own it. You have to write a letter, a writ of divorce, and you have to hand it to your spouse. That's what Joseph wants to do. He's like, I'm going to divorce her quietly, but I love her. I don't want to put her to shame. I don't want to make this public. And so then he's going to write this letter. He's not going to do it publicly, but he's going to follow the law of God, which, which tells us a little bit about Joseph. He loves Mary, and he's wrestling, and he loves God. He was going to honor God's law and do this in a way that would love her in the best way that he was able, and at the same time, to honor God's law in the best that he was able. Joseph's a great guy. He's a really great guy. But he's afraid. We know he's afraid because the angel comes to him, and what what does he say? He says, as he was considering these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, said, Joseph, son of David, do not fear. Now, he's not afraid of the angel. He's not afraid of the angel. He's afraid of the decision. He's afraid of following through with Mary. He, want, he loves Mary, but he's afraid. And, and he loves the Lord, but he's afraid. And, and this is what happens is, is that as, as we're confronted by Advent, some of us begin to present our fear. Okay, well, but if I actually believe every word of this story, it is going to change my life in such a way, and I don't know if I want that change. I don't know if I could really embrace this personal God that, that does God things and invites me into a God story through Jesus. But I don't want, I don't want the result. I like some things about my life. I like my decision-making. I like what I have going on. I like who I'm dating. I like, I like what, I, what I'm working on. I love the way I think. I love the things that I consume. I don't want anybody. I don't want a God telling me about any of those things. I like my sexuality. I like whatever it is that you like. We all have that thing that God confronts us on, and we're being asked to surrender it. But when we, we do, we're like, but I really love God. I really love him. And you know what? I've sat with enough people in 23 years of pastoring where it's like, I believe that their love for God is genuine. And they're like, I, I really love him, and I want to honor him, and I want to give my life to him. But I, and what comes up? But you're afraid. You're afraid. And, and here's the thing is he's being invited into this incredible story of God's redeeming work and saving work in the world. And and what is he? He's afraid, but he loves Mary. He loves God, but his fear keeps his love from being genuine. Because he can't genuinely love Mary in the way that she needs to be loved, in the way he's being invited to love her. Why? Because he's full of fear. So that fear is, is affecting that love. And he wants to love God, but that fear keeps his love of God from, from being because he's just being held back. And I think if that would be true of any of us. All of us are in that spot in some part of, part of our life this morning. We're afraid. We're afraid if I were to hand my life over, what would God do with it? Would he, would he call for everything? Would he ask everything of me? And would I be able to give him everything? I, I'm afraid, but I love him. And I, and I love people around me. I'm, I'm genuinely in love of the things that God has given to me. But, but I'm afraid. Because of the impact of that love. Here's what ends up happening as Advent confronts his fears. 
the problem that Joseph faces is that he becomes more afraid of his dilemma of his circumstances than the dilemma of his existence. And isn't that ultimately our fears? That the fears that are present around us, and, 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 and what I mean by that is just how they'll affect our everyday life, how they'll change the way that we live and make decisions and spend money, how they'll change all of our values and priorities. If God exists, then I have to give some things over. I don't want to do that. And so then we don't do that because we begin to look at the dilemma of our circumstances instead of the dilemma of our existence. And this is what the, this is what the angel says to Joseph. Look at Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. What's he saying? Joseph, she hasn't cheated on you. God is doing a work here. Trust the work of God. Verse 21, this is how the angel or God confronts Joseph's fear. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's an, that's a, an existence. That's an existential dilemma. See, Joseph's being invited. There's the dilemma of your circumstances, but then there's the dilemma of your existence, and that is you have sin. That is, there's a break between you and God. That is, your heart has been withheld from God. You have, you have been your own God on your own throne, running away, rebelling. These are all the words of the Bible that relate to sin. Sin's kind of this Christian word we throw out, but it doesn't have great meaning. Maybe in our world now, the word sin is really the word shame. You have shame. What are you going to do about this shame that you exist with? The consequences of decisions and the consequences of your own motives and the consequences of your own anger and selfishness and pride and greed and anger. What about those stuff? And, and here's how we know that, Jesus, that Joseph is being confronted. Now, we're, we're so used to the word Jesus, but the word Jesus is from the Old Testament, Yeshua, Joshua, and it means God saves. So he's, look at Joseph, don't be afraid of what God's doing because through this, God is entering into humanity to do what? To fix the existential crisis, to fix the, the, the crisis, not only just of our dilemma here. God, God, is, God is somewhat interested, but we get focused on, if I believe in God, will he change this sphere around me? Will he change my everyday life? Will he give me wealth and money and health and will he fix all my problems? That's, that's a dilemma of circumstances. And one of, the re, one of the issues with that is we get mad at God if he doesn't get into those areas of our lives. But here's the thing. God is much more interested in bigger things. And that is your very soul. And that is of the problem and dilemma of your existence. To which he's like, Joseph, enter into this mess. God is going to fix something far greater. Now, this, this, how does this translate for us? I, I think the neuropsychologist Edward Welch, I think he, he gives us a lot of insight here. He's not talking about Joseph, but he's just talking about the, the human experience. But we can find that Joseph, being just a man, is wrestling with the same things we wrestle with. That's what I love about that little phrase. You're just a man, you're just a woman, and so am I. So he, he looks at this when it comes to fear of people. Listen to what he says, three ways in which 
We fear people. We fear people because they can expose and humiliate us. Is that not the position he's in with Mary? She's pregnant. It looks like infidelity. He's not the father. There's exposure and humiliation for both of them. Number two, we fear people because they can reject, ridicule, and despise us. And that's exactly what happened to Joseph and Mary and living in their podunk town, a village of Nazareth, and later all of Jesus and Mary, and even after Joseph's death, they were being ridiculed. Number three, we fear people because they can attack, oppress, or threaten us. And he says, these three reasons have one in common. They see people as bigger, that is more powerful and significant than God, and out of fear, that creates in us. We give other people the power and right to tell us what to think, feel, and do. And that's where Joseph's at. He's afraid of his dilemma, but there's much something much greater here at play, and that is his very soul. That is his very issue of his existence, and that is he's separated from God, and God needed to come in and, and unite himself with us and make us his people again. Ed goes on, Ed, like I know him. Edward Welch, Dr. Welch, <laughs> goes on. Listen what he, he begins to explain. Because he, he begins to explain that our reaction to the fear of man is self-esteem and self-worth. So if I'm afraid of you, and, I, I, and I'm allowing you to dictate the things of my life, and how I feel, and how I think, and what I believe, and what I know and how I live for Christ, then, then the, one of the ways I'll, I'll combat that is make myself more valuable and worthwhile, but then it doesn't work. Listen to what he says. Self-esteem and self-worth exist because it is trying to help us with a real problem. The problem is that we're really not okay. There is no reason why we should feel great about ourselves. We are truly deficient. The meager props of self-esteem teaching will eventually collapse as people realize that their problem is much Deeper, the problem is in part our nakedness before God. The believe in yourself doctrine will collapse. It'll fall upon itself because there will, there, there will come a point in our life in which that phrase will no longer generate any power in us because the circumstances, because the existential crisis of our soul cannot be fixed by believing in ourselves. Because ourself is the problem. Which is why we need Jesus to come. And the question this morning is, do we face the fear of the problem of people and people are really big to us or our circumstances are really big? Or do we face the greater reality is we need Jesus, the one who saves his people. Thirdly, Joseph is confronted now then with a new life. Look at the text. In verse 24, when Joseph woke up from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the great resolve. So you have, you have this assertion that, that, the, that God is at work, he's personal, and he interrupts our life. And then you have the problem of, will I receive the interruption of God, or will I be afraid of the impact of that, inter that interception in my life, that interruption in my life. And then you have this resolve. And I love this resolve because it's not, it's not like family ties, you know, or full house, you know. It's like the music doesn't play, and then there's this big bow in the end, and everybody hugs. There's not that kind of conclusion. 
but it does resolve, but it resolves with Joseph being confronted with a new life because he's being confronted with a personal God and he's being confronted with the reality of facing his fears. So what does he do? Verse 21, when Joseph woke up from sleep, I love this little phrase because at this point, the author is not talking about Joseph just waking up from his nap. The author's talking about Joseph waking up and seeing with new eyes. That he went to sleep with this great dilemma and struggle being just a man. God confronted him. And now when he wakes up, his eyes are open. And, and he has a new perspective because he's interacted with God. He's been confronted by God. And so then out of his new eyes, being newly awakened from this kind of sleep, it becomes a metaphor for the whole story, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. Now listen, that sounds rosy. All right, he woke up. He's like, all right, whatever God wants, I'll do it. Do you think it was like that? No, no. See, his fears didn't change. God didn't come in and say, all right, everything's better for you now. You'll walk a rosy path. No, that wasn't at all. And we know by the story They get chased down for their lives. They have to protect Jesus. They get exiled to Egypt for a little while. They come back. They never return to their family and to the city in which they grew up in. They they go to Nazareth, somewhere they didn't want to be, and small and kind of out in the country. Everything gets changed. Joseph's fears get realized, not removed. And yet, if you're confronted with a personal God and you're confronted with the reality of that God, You walk embracing that fear. What I love about this resolve is that it's not some puppy dogs and lollipop ending. It's real life. He wakes up and he did as the angel commanded him in his real life. Being just a man with just real duties. And you know what? What does he do? He took his wife. The phrase here is literally brought her home. It means that He committed with his heart to the things that God was doing, even though at the risk of being misunderstood, at the risk of scandal, at the risk of this massive interruption, at the risk of having to explain himself, at the risk of raising a son that's not his, at at the risk of all of these things as, as her belly grows and people talk. And you know, small towns, they're awful. And so... Everybody's talking about it. All of his fears are realized, but he brings her home. He commits in his heart. He took his wife. The second thing, as he's awake, right, his desires were changed. He received new desires. This is, this is the work of the Holy Spirit in just a man. Because a, just a man shouldn't be able to fulfill this next part. But he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. Do you know why we still have the story of the virgin birth? Because Joseph chose to abstain from sleeping with his wife as his right and privilege in order to protect the virgin birth and the gospel so that the story of Jesus was preserved. Um, Just a man doesn't do that. But here's what happens is as you're confronted with the reality of God and And you realize that this is a supernatural work and both the Holy Spirit entered in to Mary and the Holy Spirit entered in, even though his life didn't really change, entered into Joseph and ordered his desires. 
This is the crazy thing, is as we receive Advent and the reality of Jesus, we receive new desires. All of a sudden, we can deny ourselves for the sake of God's kingdom and God's good and God's story. Because we've, we've embraced a new reality that, that, that Advent brings meaning to our ordinary life. And all of a sudden, what I do in a bedroom and what I do on Sunday is the same thing, worship. And so then my desires begin to change. And all of a sudden, it's not about me getting mine or me having my, my desires fulfilled, whether that's in a bed or whether that's in your workplace, whatever it is, our desires for the things that we want and the things that God wants begin to shift by the work of the Holy Spirit in us as we commit our heart to Christ. Could the reality of Christ change your desires that much? Some of you have such deep desires, you return to them over and over. Some of you, some of you have deep desires to run wild, for substances to control you. Is it possible that God could so alter your desires that you can begin to abstain from the things that have wrecked your life? Holy Spirit gives us new desires. And lastly, and this is one of my favorites, and he called his name Jesus. Now, when we think about naming a baby, it's in a, a private labor delivery room. It's like a hotel room. And it's, you know, the whole thing. And we've just, you know, the, the mess and the labor and everything, right? And you're holding the baby and they bring in the, the whole birth certificate and the whole thing. And it seems really beautiful. That's not how this happened. When you named a child, you named a child when you circumcised that child eight days after they were born. What we're, being, what we're being told here is that Joseph withheld himself, and then even after Jesus was born, he had a decision to make. Would he publicly, would he publicly worship his son? Would he publicly bring all of this forward? Now, it wasn't, it, it wasn't, it wasn't a, a typical thing to name your son a non-family name. Jesus was not a family name to him. So by naming him Jesus, he's naming him according to his actual father, not to him, puts him in an awkward situation. But you've got to realize that this phrase includes eight days. It includes traveling to the temple. It includes being in the temple and, and, uh, and having Jesus circumcised. And then it has Joseph publicly announcing this is Jesus. And what is Jesus? God saves. And that this was, now that he's been confronted with the reality of Advent, it started in his heart first. He had to commit. Um, and then his desires began to change. So there's his behavior begins to change because God does the work first. And then he has to live it out publicly. And maybe for us, where are you at in that journey? If you've committed to Christ in your heart, your desires do begin to change. And then you begin to make your worship known. It is impossible to meet Jesus and for the other two things not to happen. And for many of you, you come on Christmas, you come on Easter, and I would challenge you. That doesn't impress God doesn't impress him. It doesn't impress him because he loves you. He wants you. But the acknowledgement 
that God is something or someone, that Jesus was something or someone, begins to affect our desires and begins to work its way out in public worship. This morning, how many of you are you suspending the truth of Jesus for a lie? The lie that you can be your own God. You are being invited this morning by the confrontation of the Holy Spirit, of the reality of the birth of Jesus, that this morning to give your life to Christ. Allow Him to give you new desires. And you live it out publicly, embracing the fear. Lord Jesus, thanks for this morning, for your word, and for the Lord Jesus. And I pray for me, a Christian a long time. I pray for those in this room that are Christian. I pray for those in this room that are not Christians. Advent confronts all of us. It begs all of us to surrender and take a knee and bow to the king of the universe. And I know, God, there is nothing in my words that has the power to transform either myself or anybody in this room. But Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that entered in Mary, the same Holy Spirit that changed the desires of Joseph, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would enter into our heart, that you would show us, reveal to us the gospel of Jesus and the majesty of King Jesus, and that you would empower our desire this morning to go from attender to worshiper. And some of us, we need, only, we need the power of the Holy Spirit to break through our fear of what it would actually mean to live for King Jesus.